Good morning. We're reading out of John 11, verses 1 to 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Good morning. Welcome to Central. Thank you, Wendy, for reading that passage uh, for us today. Uh, my name is Eldon. For those that uh, have never met me before, I'm a pastor here at this uh, campus for Central in this very nice place, fantastic place called Agassiz. I love it here. Glad you're here this morning. Um, this fall, we're going through uh, a series which is a little bit different than we normally do. Although we're anchoring our time in specific texts of Scripture, we are going through a series, a bit topical, called Doubt. Um, if you have this book with you, we're on page 12. If anyone doesn't have a series study guide like we usually put out in the fall, uh, let us know. We're actually out of copies right now, but let the Welcome Center know and we can get you one if you want to continue on in, in the series uh, personally or together with the life group as you uh, go deeper in these passages. But today, as Bill already said for us, uh, we're talking about uh, the, the topic for today is why would a good God allow such horrendous evil and suffering in the world? This question is consistently the biggest barrier, uh, question, doubt to faith, to Christian faith that there is. The loss of loved ones, broken families, abuse, rape, murder, terrorism, racism, mental illness, depression, suicide, poverty and starvation, addiction, infertility, bankruptcy, loneliness. These and more all cause us to question, if not doubt, God and faith and even his very existence. Um, <clears throat> my wife, uh, Marcy, and I, this uh, past week received a message, actually it was just a few days ago, that someone who is very close to us had been praying that God would kill him. And it just broke our hearts. He had had enough of the suffering and the torment of his mental illness, which has plagued his mind, his heart, his body, his soul, for almost 30 years now, and he just wanted it to end. 
And, and just on Wednesday, I uh, am involved in a, in a board and a committee in our denomination for pastoral credentialing. We, we had four interviews on Wednesday, and in the, the last one that we had that day, uh, we all heard the heart-wrenching story of a couple who recounted for us the loss of their infant daughter just after birth and the tailspin of depression and pain and deep, deep torment that that event put them into, particularly the husband, as he was the one who removed himself from the birthing situation and watched, witnessed the doctor's uh, inability and failure to resuscitate their baby girl. And it just traumatized him, and it took them a long time to come to the place where they felt like they could move forward again. Uh, yesterday, <laughs> the family of Nellie said, uh, paid their respects and had a memorial service for her. A young woman, I call her young because she's uh, roughly my age, 50, Len, 51? 50. Uh, a woman who died uh, because of a terrible illness that affected her liver and we had that service just here in the hall yesterday. How is it possible that as we observe and experience suffering and evil, to not only claim that there is a God, but that he is a good God? David Hume, uh, 18th century Scottish philosopher said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able to but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, why then is there evil? Simply stated, or to put it a different way, terrible stuff happens in the world. So either God is all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, this all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible can't exist. Now, we can philosophize and we can theologize all we want, but that in itself would be insufficient because evil and suffering aren't just things that we think about. We feel them. Our doubts aren't just intellectual. They're highly emotional. Our mind and our heart are so affected, and what happens here in our heart impacts us deeply here in our mind. So the challenge that I face as I preach this morning is that what happens here primarily in our heart is painful. In fact, the scripture that uh, Wendy read for us this morning and the short stories that I just shared have already, I'm sure, deeply impacted and triggered some of you. So the place of pain that you might be suffering today is something that I want to be very, very sensitive to because I know as I look out into a crowd this size, that there are people here this morning who are suffering deep pain. But here's what I also know. In the words of C.S. Lewis, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. And so I am confident this morning that God will speak to us. He already has in the reading of his word, but I'm confident that God will continue to speak to us loudly and clearly this morning in our place of pain and suffering. 
So let's look at Jesus' response to suffering in the biblical story that was just read for us. Uh, and there's, there's, I want to break up this text three ways. And I want to talk about, first of all, when Jesus is a no-show. <laughs> when Jesus doesn't show up. Secondly, when Jesus does show up. And third, when Jesus shows up in power. So let's, to, let's start at the beginning here and talks about, talk about when Jesus is a no-show. So our text begins by telling us that Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is sick. And, and so being friends with Jesus, they sent word to him. They knew him well. He's the person who had healed many people. And so they said, they sent word to him and saying, Lazarus is sick. So verse 5 tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. But then surprisingly, it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Hmm. Like, thanks a lot, Jesus. I thought that you would drop everything and show up because you love us and Lazarus is very ill. Question for you. Have you ever called out to Jesus and he didn't respond? He's a no-show. You know, he could have, but he didn't. In those moments, it feels like Jesus doesn't care. Did he really, does he really love me? Did he really love them? He said he did. This, te this text tells us. Is there nothing that he can do? The text is going to prove the opposite very shortly, but I think all of us in this room are familiar with the Mary and Martha experience. Something is going wrong, very wrong. You know, my wife and I have been married now for 29 years and we've experienced a few things. Huh, thank you. We've, we've experienced a few things in our married lives together, uh, both individually and as a couple and our family with our kids, with extended family, with life circumstances over 29 years that uh, we would definitely say some things have gone wrong. I'm going to talk about a few this morning. And we really believe that Jesus has the power to change the situation, that he loves us enough to do so. So when he doesn't do what we ask or what we expect, we're not only a bit puzzled by that, but it adds to the hurt and the confusion that we feel. So was it unloving of Jesus to wait two more days? It would have felt that way to Mary and Martha. It, to them, it probably felt like a bit of a betrayal. I thought, Jesus, you were my friend. Uh, and, and if you've ever had those feelings and those thoughts, you know what I mean. See, Jesus doesn't love me. He doesn't come because maybe he just doesn't care. Or maybe he's busy with something else. He, or he's not powerful enough. He can't do anything about this anyway. Or he just doesn't exist. But the story is here to teach us otherwise. Jesus gives a reason to his disciples. Verse 4 and he says this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And here's what Jesus is saying this morning. And this is hard to hear, but it's in the Bible. It's what Jesus said, and that is this, nothing is without purpose. Sorrow, sickness, death, nothing happens to you, nothing happens to me that God does not permit 
for a reason and for a purpose. And you will not encounter any situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. And again, I'm saying this very carefully because I know that there are people here who are in deep pain and suffering because of some things that have gone wrong like they did for Mary and Martha. A very, you might be living in a challenging marriage that is not life-giving at all. You may be working under the authority of a boss who just doesn't care about you and demands things from you and is harsh. You may be living under crushing debt. You may, be, you may have a dysfunctional family, heartbreak, loss, sickness, illness, and I want to let you know this morning that God can be glorified in every situation. In fact, I would argue that it's in pain, in suffering, that his glory has the opportunity to be seen in the greatest of ways. The couple who lost their baby that, that we interacted with on Wednesday, they said to us around the table, and there was probably a dozen people in the room, and there were many tears. And I was blown away by this, and I quote, suffering is not opposed to the power and goodness of God. God's power is seen and manifest in suffering. And they experienced it firsthand and they went on to tell us how God's glory was manifest in their circumstances and continues to be. But this flies in the face of a premise that we typically live by, that if God exists, then his goal for human life is happiness in this world. But the Christian worldview, the Christian view, is that the chief end of humanity is not happiness in this world, but it is the glory of God. The chief end of man is to enjoy God and to love him and to give him glory, to glorify him, which will ultimately bring true and eternal human fulfillment. You see, many evils occur that seem utterly pointless with respect to the goal of happiness in this world, but they may not be unjustified with respect to producing the knowledge of God and his glory which he wants to produce in our lives. And as followers of Jesus, we must learn to ask of any and every situation, not so much, Lord, get me out of this. What's the quickest way out of this that I may continue to be happy? So much as how can I glorify God in this? As painful as it is. And you might say, well, that's nice, pastor, but you have no idea. You have no clue about me, about my life. You don't know what you're talking about. And on one hand, you're right. I have no clue. (laughs) I don't know what's happening in many of your lives. For some, I do. And Marcy and I pray. And this church prays. And listen... I want to let you know that I could talk to you all day long literally about the suffering of my own soul, but let's just say that me standing here today, as I've said before, preaching this sermon to you, being a pastor in this church is a miracle and a testament to God's glory all in itself for many reasons. I could be at this moment preaching to juries, (laughs) and that's what I wanted to do. My goal as I was finishing high school in Saskatoon was to go to the University of Saskatchewan to study law, to become the best 
criminal lawyer I could become and go on to be the best uh, crown prosecutor, attorney, so that I could put bad guys away. I could set the record straight. I could seek justice for people, if not revenge, for the sexual and psychological abuse and its lingering effects that I suffered as a 10-year-old and onward at the hands of a serial pedophile. That's my story. But for his glory, God redeemed me and my situation, and by his grace and for his glory, I stand here today only by those two things. By his grace and for his glory. And I want to let you know this morning that Eldon has nothing to offer you, (laughs) but God does. God does. So now we can feel like God doesn't care about us, only his glory. (laughs) But we need not pit those two things against each other. The text tells us that Jesus stayed two more days for, for two reasons. Number one, for the glory of God. And secondly, because he loved this family. And, and, and you, you say, uh, how, how could he love this family if it was about his glory and he continued to stay away? But I want to say to you that God's glory is primarily displayed in his love for people and that the glory of God and the love of God are not opposites, they're often synonymous. This morning I got up early and I was reading in Lamentations. For whatever reason, I decided to go through Lamentations. (laughs) And the first two chapters are brutal. You almost get depressed reading that stuff and then halfway through chapter three, I think it is, all of a sudden, and if you put it into context, the steadfast love of the Lord (laughs) never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. And that, come, that came out of a deep and a long season of lamentation and sorrow to the point where this prophet who wrote Lamentation said he was so overwhelmed with what was happening in the nation of Judah that he literally was sick to his stomach and it said his bile was spilled out onto the ground. It made him nauseated. He was sick at his own sin and the sin of the nation and what God was allowing them to suffer. But he came to the conclusion (laughs) that this love of God never ceases. And his mercy is new every morning. And so the glory of God and the love of God are not mutually exclusive. They go together and we're going to see that as we continue in the story. And so Jesus tells his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And at this point, the disciples are pretty confused because they said, well, hang on a second here, Jesus. Like we just came from that direction. And when we were over there last time, uh, they tried to kill you. And so Lazarus now is having a pretty good nap. You know, he's recovering from his illness. You know, he got some antibiotics and a little bit of Tylenol or whatever, and he's doing all right, so let's just let this slide. Let's not go back. If he's napping, let's not risk our lives. But Jesus said, guys, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about death. So why did Jesus confuse them and not just come out and name it? Why does Jesus call death sleep? And I think it's because he's showing his disciples and us a totally different perspective on death than we usually have. We people in our culture fear death. 
The disciples feared death. Mary and Martha feared death. They didn't want their brother, their friend, to die from this illness. They see, they saw death. We see death sometimes as something that wins out. But to Jesus, death is no worse than sleep. Jesus doesn't wait because, because he doesn't uh, care about Lazarus. He waits because death is powerless before him. Raising Lazarus for Jesus is going to be easier than it will be for some of you to wake up your kids tomorrow morning for school. <laughs> that, that's, that's what he's saying here. Or maybe easier for you to wake up your spouse to go to work or if you don't have either of those, maybe to get your cat to wake up in the morning. I don't know what it is, but it's easier for Jesus to raise Lazarus than to do any of those things. And he has reasons to allow Lazarus to die, reasons that even his sisters and disciples, those closest to him, could not see. And here's the thing. Just because we cannot see a reason for any given experience of suffering doesn't mean that there cannot be one. So there's a philosopher named J.L. Mackey who posed a case against God in a book that he wrote in the 1980s, and he said this. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional one. And that statement has been broadly critiqued by many other philosophers, both religious and not, because of his assertion of the premise that if evil seems pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Is it possible, if not even probable, that if God is great and transcendent enough to be mad at for not stopping evil and suffering in the world, that he could be great and transcendent enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing it to continue that we can't see? but we can't have it both ways. So as long as it's even possible that God has some good reason for doing things the way he has, it's impossible to show that he is unjust, impotent, and unloving. And we see this well in the biblical narrative, the true account of a man named Joseph. <laughs> Joseph was kind of a neat kid, and he had the sort of the, the ear and the blessing of his father. He's the youngest second youngest boy, I think, in the family, right? And uh, for whatever reason, his dad favored him, and he gave him this really cool coat of many colors, and his brothers hated him. He was jealous. He got all the attention. And so they decided they must have really hated him because they wanted him dead. And so they took him out one day. They let him out into the wilderness to do some chores, and they decided they would kill him, and one of them said, no, no, no. And so the plot gets even more evil. And they said, why kill him? We can make some money. So let's, let's make it look like he's dead. We'll put him in a pit so he can't get out. We'll send news to dad that he got killed by some wild animals. We'll show proof with some blood here on the clothing. And, uh, and we'll sell him off and make some money. So, like, you know, we can get rid of a man and get some cash. So Joseph, sure enough, he gets sold by his brothers to some slave traders who took him down to Egypt and um, he enters into a life of slavery. He's, uh, he becomes a personal servant of, a, of an official who's, uh, 
whose wife accused him of a crime that he didn't commit, and he's sent to prison for many years. Okay, it's a lot of, a lot of pretty unfair, unjust things that happen in this story, don't you think? Like a little bit of trouble coming his way. I'm sure in prison that Joseph probably spent uh, quite a bit of time on his knees crying out to God, for which there were no answers. God was a no-show. And through a series of uh, events that God orchestrated because he had a reason why Joseph was suffering in that moment, Joseph is all of a sudden elevated miraculously to become the second in command of the entire country of a nation that is the most powerful in the world at that time. And the reason? Thousands of lives were spared, including those of his family and brothers, the very ones who hated him. If God hadn't allowed Joseph to suffer, he never could have saved a nation and all of their neighbors. It is an incredible story of the gospel that points us to our loving Savior. He was eventually able to see it himself and say to his brothers in the end, you... You guys meant it for evil. At that time, he could have snuffed them out. He could have put them in prison if not had them executed for what they did to him. He was that powerful. But he said, you guys meant this for evil, but God, and I've said it before, friends, and I'll say it again, the two <laughs> words that I love when they, when they come together in Scripture is this, but God, but God. But God meant it for good. He meant it for the saving of many, many lives. Not too long ago, Stephen Colbert, he's, uh, you know, uh, host of a late night talk show. Stephen Colbert was interviewed by the uh, anchor of CNN, uh, Anderson Cooper. And at one point uh, in this interview, Anderson Cooper, CNN anchor, brought up the fact that when Colbert, and this is true story, when Colbert was a child, his father and his brothers were all killed in a plane crash. And he said to Colbert, you told an interviewer that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. You went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? And then Cooper's voice cracked. He was visibly choked up and confused as he asked Colbert, do you really believe that? And after a long pause, this is what Colbert said. Yes, it is a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escape from that. I didn't learn that I was grateful for the thing I most wish didn't happen. It's that I realized it. If you are grateful for your life, which is a positive thing to do, then you have to be grateful for all of it. And what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love them more deeply and to understand that it, what it's like to be a human being. If it's true that all humans suffer, and so at a young age I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children, is that I had something understanding that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them 
in a deep way that not only accepts that all suffer, but also then makes you grateful that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. And that's what I mean. It's about the fullness of your humanity. What's the point of being here and being human if you can't be the most human that you can be? I want to be the most human I can be, and that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things I most wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. In my tradition, that's the great sacrifice of Christ. God does it too, that you're really not alone. God does it too. And then Cooper very quickly changed the subject. (laughs) There's something in um, social psychology called the boomerang effect, and it applies here. In attempting to show that suffering, in this specific case, is evidence against an all-loving, all-powerful God, it has over and over again had the opposite, the boomerang effect, that suffering actually turns us to God to acknowledge his power and his love. The Sunday after 9-11 in New York City, the churches were never as full as they were then. The country, I do believe, where Christianity at the moment, it used to be China, and we've all seen what's going on in Hong Kong and China recently, but I do believe the, the, the country in which the church, the Christian church is growing the most rapidly at the moment is Iraq. Iraq or Iran. Talk about suffering. Have you followed what's happened in Iraq in the last decade? So like Colbert, many of us can testify to the fact that the sufferings we have faced have actually been gifts, gifts we wouldn't wish on anyone or choose for ourselves, but gifts in the sense that we see what they accomplish in our lives. They build in us compassion and empathy. They can. Some people become bitter and angry. They build in compassion and empathy. They strengthen our faith. They remind us of our need for God. They create a longing for the new heavens and the new earth. So on Monday last week, I was sitting in this hall having dinner with the volunteers for the fall fair because they put on an appreciation dinner for those that help out at the fair. And so I'm sitting around a table with uh, three other people. There's four of us at our table and uh, a couple of ladies. I I don't think they were uh, believers. Uh, But they were talking uh, amongst themselves about their gardening It was an interesting conversation and all of a sudden we got included in the conversation a little bit as they were talking about a certain plant that uh, they didn't, I don't know if they didn't much care for it, but they found it hard to get this certain plant to really flourish, right? And, And so the one lady said, ah, I just got tired of the thing so I just cut it down. And then what do you know? This thing just starts growing again. And she says, the more I prune it, you know what? The more it grows and it looks awesome now. And I went, hmm... I think there's a story about that somewhere. (laughs) Quite possibly in here. Here's the thing. 
I've also taught a series through the vine of the branches. When we're pruned, it's terribly painful. I mean, who wants to be cut? Sometimes right back to nothing. But lo and behold, there's flourishing. There's new growth. And it's in those moments that I've come to discover when we are being pruned, for whatever reason, that the gardener, the gardener God, is closest to us. He's right there. And he knows what he's doing. Because he wants us to grow. And he wants us to flourish. And he knows where to cut. You know what's made me a better pastor? I, I hope I'm, a, I'm an okay pastor. <laughs> I've had a few uh, rough edges uh, chiseled off over the over 25 years. <laughs> Suffering. Some of you have heard my story. I've had quite a few interesting experiences in pastoral ministry, but the one that cut me back the most was when I burned out and I left ministry for a while and I was deeply wounded and deeply hurt through the process. And I left ministry for a long while. I did not want to return at all because I was hurting so badly and I was terribly angry. My poor wife did not know what to do with me, so she phoned a counselor through Oasis Ministries that uh, she just didn't know what to do. So she phoned this guy, and all of a sudden I got a phone call from him, and I said, did, did Marcy, did she tell you to phone me? And, and all he said was, he didn't answer the question. He says, you have a, a wife who loves you a lot. So it was on uh, my sabbatical, which I uh, didn't want to take that way, that I got my hands on a book, and I have no idea how. It's called, uh, it's written by Dan Allender called Leading with a Limp. And it refers to the failings, and trust me, friends, um, I failed a lot. I failed a lot. So... It talks about the failings, the flaws, the insecurities, the injuries that humanize leaders and actually make them a little bit more desirable to follow because they walk with a limp. And so that whole process, which took probably a year and a half to land back solidly on my feet when I met this tiny group at the Friendship House in Agassiz, <laughs> who also, I think, uh, were just landing on their feet we just grew to love each other, and look what's happened. Look what's happened as a result of that. Look at the flourishing. I have to pinch myself almost every day of my life and go, God, is this real? Is this real that I get to preach to these people today? Is this real that I get to, that I get to care for these people? as insufficiently as I do it. <laughs> and this flies in the face of the premise that there could be no good reason for suffering. But we all inherently know that it is suffering more than anything else that builds into us the character and the courage and a deep love for others that God wants us to have. 
And so now all of these scenarios came about. Why? Because Jesus didn't show up. Boy, I spent a lot of time on point one. You're probably nervous now. You're not going to get to lunch. But trust me, the next two are going to go faster. (laughs) So what happens when Jesus does show up? Oh, my goodness. You thought it was good till now. Just wait. Lazarus has now been in the tomb for four days. And when Mary and then Martha each see Jesus, the first thing out of their mouth is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I think that they both said the same thing in verse 21 and then in verse 32 because they had been thinking it over and over in their minds again for the past four or five days. And they've been saying it to themselves. They've been saving it to each other. And you see, their plan was that Jesus would show up while Lazarus was still alive and heal him, but he didn't, and it hurt them. It crushed them. Why weren't you here? And Jesus kind of, I imagine the way it's written in the text, kind of nonchalantly says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Well, thanks a lot, Jesus. Like, that seems kind of cold. Isn't that a little bit aloof, a little bit distant for you? to say this and Martha's like I know like at the, at the end in the resurrection that Lazarus is going to rise again but what about now and you see we're much more like children than we are philosophers when pain comes into our lives our pain is real urgent and we want something that offers hope now and we want it our way But what Jesus wanted them to see was that their greatest need was not to have their brother back. Their greatest need was to have Jesus. Jesus looked at Martha straight in the eye and he said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Your hope, Martha, is not in an event. It's not in in healing this sickness it's in a person and your hope is me it's Jesus nothing can stop Jesus from giving life because he doesn't just have life he doesn't just say true things Jesus is the life that's what he declares to us and he is truth and what these sisters and what you and what I need more than anything else is not less suffering we need more Jesus Can I get another witness? Amen. (laughs) It's what we need. We need more Jesus. But after his exchange with Martha, Mary comes to Jesus and all those mourning the death of Lazarus as well. And Jesus witnesses all of them weeping. And we ask ourselves, does Jesus care about suffering? We're going to see the answer pretty quick. What Jesus does not say is, hey, 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 stop it, stop it. Stop your crying. It's all going to work out. It tells us that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled when he saw everyone weeping. And then verse 35, John 11, Jesus wept. One of the most powerful verses in scripture. Does Jesus care about suffering? Here's the answer. Jesus wept. Before he fixed the problem, he joined their pain. He entered their grief before he cured anything. And we often shy away from uncomfortable situations or we avoid pain, our own or that pain of other people because it makes us uncomfortable. But scripture models for us in Jesus and instructs us in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. 
and we need to take our cues here and we need to enter each other's suffering. Without trying to figure out why, without making accusation, without saying anything, we need to come along and weep. So when I was upside down after my painful ministry <laughs> experience, this was at the end of 2011, 2010, 2011. So 2012 and half of 2013 for me were rough. So Marcy and I, we decided we would try out a couple of different churches in the Chilliwack area. The first two Sundays we went, I just sat there and cried. I didn't hear much. It was terribly awkward. And so we said, okay, enough of this. We can't just go to church and sit there and cry every Sunday. So I had been in ministry at this point uh, for uh, about 15 years. And so 16 years, something like that. And so we didn't know anything else but church on Sunday morning. And so we sat on the back patio and had coffee. And it was pretty cool. But <laughs> just being honest with you, but it wasn't that satisfying. So then we went out for motorcycle rides. And that, you know, that was a lot better. <laughs> but we still didn't have the fellowship of church. But in that time, there's a friend of mine. His name is Gilbert. He's a big, burly man, you know, his hands are twice the size of mine. He's the guy who can go out in the bush and cut down a tree and, you know, carry it out of there without, without you know, with his bare hands, right? And, uh, and, and uh, Gilbert spent a lot of time with me. And I remember one, I think it was even a Sunday morning, we were at Tim Hortons having coffee and all I could do again was cry. Not just cry, weep, bawl. I was bawling. And Gilbert, sitting across from me, he put out those big burly hands and he grabbed my hands and he just held them. And he just let me cry. And he would cry with me and he would pray for me and he didn't try to fix me. Can you imagine? Two grown guys sitting in Tim Hortons. <laughs> holding hands and crying. <laughs> Woo! Right at Promontory and Vetter. <laughs> oh, Lord. He's so good. Rebecca McLaughlin said, Christians truly following Jesus are deeply attached and covered in tears, their own and those of others, just like their Lord. And yet we hear the accusation, God doesn't care. But... This space between Lazarus' death and Jesus calling him out of the tomb is the space in which Mary and Martha see Jesus for who, who he really is. And, and friends, uh, others need to see Jesus for who he really is through us. That Jesus is their very life and he's their very source and he is the answer to what they need. And then Jesus shows up in power and we're gonna land this airplane pretty quick. Uh, with verse 38, Jesus then deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against us and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. The King James translates Martha's words this way, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> so like, 
Mary, Mary and Martha grew up with a, with a brother and they knew that men at the best of times stink. <laughs> and they said, you know, it's one thing to lay on the couch for four days without deodorant. It's another thing to be in a hot tomb for four days dead. Don't open it. And the fact at this point when Jesus is about to roll away the stone and they're telling him, don't do it, it stinketh, Lord, means they have no clue what's about to happen. Is Jesus good but not able to stop evil and suffering? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of all these people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Come on out of there. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said, unbind the poor guy, let him go. And here we see why Jesus didn't come right away and why, or, or why he didn't heal Lazarus from afar, which he could have done from way over there where he was. It was so that this whole crowd of onlookers could see what was happening and believe in Jesus. Ha! Ah. Yet another purpose that God has for all of this suffering. Not only has Jesus shown his overwhelming love for us, but he proves it in power over the greatest of evil and suffering of all. And he puts the blow to the final enemy, the last enemy, which is death. So neither claim posed against him that he's uh, neither powerful enough nor loving enough can stand because Jesus is both. And what I want you to see this morning is what Jesus is, is that what Jesus does for Lazarus proves that he has the power to keep his promise. Jesus promises that those who believe in him, though they die physically, will live eternally with him. And then he posed the question to Mary and Martha, and, he, they, and Jesus said, do you believe this? And my question to you this morning is, do you believe this? that though you or your loved one or somebody else die, if they believe in me, though they die, they shall live. Do you believe it? It's the greatest hope that we have. Not just for future, but for now. And we can, Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And yes, that means then on the other side of this earth, of this life, but it means now. We can live with incredible hope. You may be thinking, but no eternal pleasure, no future hope could ever make up for the evil and the suffering that's taken place in my life. Listen to this guy, Fyodor Dostoevsky. He's a Russian novelist. And when I read this, I just went, wow. He said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Wow. Just because we can't conceive of how that might be possible doesn't mean that it isn't. And friends, I want, 
I wish I had time, but I don't. Read the end of the book. Revelation 21 and 22. Read the end of the book. Death does not get the last word. Jesus doesn't just feel sorry for us in our pain. He takes that agony on himself. And this is the best news of all, and this is why this table is set this morning. Christianity stands alone in its claim that God became human in Jesus, that he knows our despair, our rejection, our poverty, our loneliness, our loss, our injustices, and our, the, the torture that we experience because he went to the cross. And on that cross, he went beyond the worst of all human suffering, experiencing cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds what we could even imagine. And in his death on the cross, God suffered in love, identifying with all the abandoned, the brokenhearted, and removed the very thing that causes all of this suffering to begin with, sin. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins so that one day all suffering and evil and death could be vanquished once for all. And that's what we now get to remember as we celebrate by partaking of this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice, which so, in a sense it's so inadequate, but it, it's what Jesus told us to do. <laughs> when he had that last meal before, with his disciples before he suffered, on the cross. He said, from now on until that time later when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, this is what you are to do. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The beauty of the passage that we read this morning is that death does not get the last word. Jesus has spoken. Sickness doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection. Jesus, not death, gets the final word. And his word to you and to me this morning is, I am the resurrection and the life and I will see you in my Father's kingdom if you believe in me, and we will do this together. Let's pray. And as I do so, the team will come up, and as they, and I'll ask the servers to come up as well here as we finish with these, the best symbols of our faith that, that we have. Um, as the team plays, uh, the servers are going to serve you. Uh, you're going to get a piece of bread. You're going to get a cup. I want you just to hold on to them, reflect on what Jesus has so wonderfully said to us this morning. And then when, when the team is done playing, we're going to partake together as we give thanks for the resurrection and the life. So let's pray. Father, Oh, you're so good. You gave us Jesus who entered into our suffering. Not only to identify with us, one who was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. One who is completely obedient and submissive to the will of the Father. 
not only to enter into all of that, but to actually follow through and to die, that we would be set free, that we would have hope, that we can live with joy in the midst of our suffering. So Lord, as we reflect on that, as we wait to partake together, would you bless us? Make your face shine on us and give us your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.